sodium has long been associated with hydration in endurance and ultra-endurance sports, but there's been a lack of clear guidelines on how much sodium we need and why. So does replacing the sodium lost in sweat actually influence our hydration? If so, how much is enough? And do we need to measure our sweat sodium losses to give us the answers? In today's podcast, we'll look at a recently completed study that explored these questions over five hours of running in the heat and points us to some answers to guide our electrolyte planning for race day. Hello and welcome to Fueling Endurance, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about sodium and in particular, what's new in this area following publication of a recent study on the topic. This follows on nicely from episodes 10A, should I get a sweat test, and 47A, how much sodium do I need to replace during exercise? But before we get into that, this episode of Fueling Endurance is brought to you by the Fueling Endurance eBook. This eBook provides comprehensive written articles covering the contents of the first two years of the podcast. At over 260 pages, it's packed with practical tips and suggestions, tables, diagrams, and flowcharts as well as stories and quotes from expert researchers, nutrition practitioners, coaches, and athletes who have been guests on the podcast. Each part of the book can be read as a standalone article or as a section of articles on one topic. It provides an invaluable resource for the runner, cyclist, triathlete, or coach seeking to improve their nutrition game and addresses 49 of the most common questions or challenges they face. Everything from what should I eat before my long training session to why do I cramp during exercise and is low carb right for me? There's also bonus videos to step you through some of the more technical diagrams in the book, which you can access via the QR code included inside the ebook. The Fueling Endurance ebook is now available from our website, fuelingendurance.com, and that's spelt with one L, and also now available for Kindle via Amazon. The sales of the book help support the cost of running this podcast, and we really appreciate each and every one of you who purchases it. Also, If you want to get practical sports nutrition news, tips, and tricks delivered directly to your inbox every couple of weeks, you can join the Fueling Endurance email newsletter. It's completely free, and you can sign up at fuelingendurance.com. That's fueling with one L. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at Fueling Endurance on Instagram or Facebook, or at Fuel Endurance on Twitter, aka X, or contact us via our website, fuelingendurance.com. So we are talking to the one and only Alan McCubbin, a.k.a. the sodium guy, with the topic, does taking sodium during exercise improve my hydration? So you're starting to get a name for yourself, Al. How do you like being referred to as a sodium guy? Well, it's a funny one. I don't know if I should be shoveling salt in driveways in the snow or <laughs> putting salt on people's chips for them or something, Steph. But um, no, I did get called the sodium master once on a podcast as well. So yeah, it is it is spreading slowly. And uh, yeah, certainly as you 
do a lot of research in a particular area, people sort of start to pay attention and you get all sorts of contacts and requests about stuff. So, yeah, it's been good and, and hearing people reach out from within the sporting community from, you know, local clubs and recreational athletes right through to, you know, professional, you know, elite professional teams. So, yeah, it's been really nice to kind of build that continuity in a research topic area. Yeah, I guess I become the sodium guy without really intending it. <laughs> and so you developed this five-hour study on sodium with the aim to investigate the effect of personalised sweat sodium replacement on drinking behaviour, sodium and water balance and thermophysiological responses during and after ultra-endurance running in hot conditions. There's a bloody lot to unpack here, so let's get into it. First off, what prompted this study? Yeah, well, this study was only published, was it November 2023, I think, off the top of my head. <laughs> but actually, it all started back in probably about October or November 2018. So at that time, I was actually still doing my PhD. I was in the final stages of my PhD, writing up my thesis. And you'll remember this well as well, Steph, because you were doing your honours project at mm. Monash at the same time. And a grant funding round came through from the Ultra Sports Science Foundation. And Ricardo, who we both work with, who supervised both of our PhDs and, and your honours project, sort of said, well, you guys are going to put in some applications for grants. What do you want to do? So I guess as I was in the final stages of writing up my PhD, and that was on the topic of sodium, you know, you, you come to the conclusion of a thesis like that and you still have a lot of unanswered questions. You've hopefully answered a few along the way as part of your PhD. Often it's raised more questions than you've been able to answer. And so we, we did have some unanswered questions. So there was a few things going on. One was the effect that sodium has or may not have on thirst and on voluntary fluid intake during exercise. So there was a lot of research about, I guess, how salty your food or drinks were after exercise and the rehydration side, but not as much during exercise. There was actually a couple of case studies that suggested maybe this was a concern in ultra-endurance athletes, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more later on. But there was certainly some concern that actually taking too much sodium during ultra-endurance exercise would make you so thirsty, you would actually end up drinking too much and, and becoming overhydrated. But there wasn't really much more than a couple of case studies and anecdotal reports around that. So we thought that was worth looking at. The other thing I want to look at, which I sort of realized during my PhD for the first time, was that our bodies actually store sodium outside of our fluid compartments in the body. And we've always known that we store some sodium in bone, but we also store some sodium in our skin and in our muscles. And this is something that with new MRI technology, we've been able to measure in more recent years and get a better sense of, of what's going on there. And this has been looked at more in the, the clinical realm and sort of looking at chronic health conditions and things like that. But there had been some suggestions in research, but really only hypotheses that, you know, these inactive sodium stores, as they're called, may become active or, or be released into the blood um, due to you know large sodium losses in sweat during exercise and maybe we didn't need to replace sodium because we could just top it up from these stores. But there really wasn't any evidence for that. So it was just a hypothesis. So we thought, well, that's worth trying to look at as well. The other thing I was really interested about was a study I came across during my PhD from 1957. And this was a study that looked at how much sodium you pee out in your urine after exercise. And this depended on you know, how much 
sodium you lost in your sweat during exercise and how much of that you replaced. But this study was was actually an N of one. There was only one participant in that study. They did 48 trials in one participant. I'm guessing the author of the study was the participant, but I don't know for sure. It was 1957. It's also been kind of commonly assumed that that would be the case, that if you get a big sodium deficit during exercise because you lost all this sodium and you didn't replace it, that your kidneys would sort of spring into action after exercise and try and conserve sodium. But there wasn't really any direct evidence that I could find beyond this this one case study. So I thought that would be a really great opportunity to look at this as well in an ultra endurance context. Mm. Yeah, it's funny how we just, I don't know, we read it in the textbook, you know, that this is the advice and we assume, well, that's based off of, you know, a lot of evidence. But as you've just seen, you could only find one study that was backing up that statement, I guess. One study and one person in that study. (laughs) So what are ultra-endurance athletes doing when it actually comes to sodium replacement during exercise? Yeah, we had a look at this as well during the PhD. There was a survey study we did, which easiest study I've ever done. We went from, I think, ethics approval to having all the data in four weeks. It was amazing. Yeah, we ended up surveying, I think, 300 and something athletes from about 15 or 16 countries. We we wrote up a subset of that data, which was six countries. But what we looked at when we asked people about what they're doing with sodium during exercise, it was a real mixed bag. And I think part of that is that it is a controversial area. There's obviously the the sports drink and electrolyte industry that kind of promote the use or, or replacement of, of sodium and electrolytes during exercise. And then there's the others that are kind of the the pushback against that. Obviously, Tim Noakes with his book Waterlogged is a big part of that, but I'm sure he's not the only one. And so I think because there hasn't been clear guidelines around this because of a lack of evidence, really, it has sort of all this information and counter information has kind of filled that vacuum. And so there has been a lack of guidelines. And I think that's why when we looked at the the survey results, you know, there were people that were massive advocates for, you know, major sodium replacement during exercise. There were other people that basically said sodium stupid. Why would you take that? It's just completely unnecessary. So people seem to be either very pro or very anti-electrolytes when we looked at that survey data. What we did see though, that was that a large percentage of people were it certainly wasn't you know ninety percent or something, but it was you know well over fifty or sixty percent off the top of my head were deliberately increasing the amount of sodium in their diet two to three days before a race because they were worried about the sodium losses during exercise and thought that they needed to load up on sodium quote unquote in the days prior. We also asked them whether they thought replacing sodium would be helpful during exercise for either health reasons or performance reasons in terms of hydration, body temperature regulation, preventing hyponatremia, preventing cramping, improving performance, these kind of things. And generally, the majority of people or the the majority view was that, yes, replacing sodium was important for all of these things. And this is despite, you know, no real guidelines to tell us one way or the other. I'm not suggesting that the guidelines say it's useless, but there wasn't wasn't clear sort of guidelines to to point people in the right direction. So yeah, those that, that do take sodium as well often look to completely replace their sodium losses. So if they are going to do a sweat test and quantify and they go, I'm losing this many milligrams per hour, they were then trying to replace all of that losses, you know, 100% of their sodium losses. So yeah, it was interesting. There were definitely some big differences between people, but I guess more people were probably pro-electrolytes than anti-electrolytes, if you're going to kind of summarise it. Mm, yeah, and I know just from, I guess, 
practicing with athletes and back in the day when you know you used to get sweat testing that yeah that was generally what I get I think practitioners did right you get the Mm. test back and it was like well this is the amount of sodium loss and we just kind of automatically thought oh we just need a we would always try and replace majority of it. Mm. So, yeah, so that's quite interesting. So what's the big deal if athletes consume high sodium intakes during the ultra-endurance exercise? Yeah, so if they consume heaps of sodium, whether it's to completely replace the losses or maybe even more because they don't know their losses necessarily or they're just popping salt capsules left, right and centre, something like that, I guess the risk is that they become excessively thirsty. So, you know, generally during exercise, we talked about this in that previous podcast you mentioned off the top, Steph, that if you go out and exercise and you're losing water, you're losing sodium in your sweat, but you don't eat or drink anything during exercise, your blood sodium concentration will actually go up and that will actually signal to the brain as as that goes up, your osmolality goes up, that signals to your brain to make you more thirsty and also to conserve fluid. So then you you have a you know an extra drive to drink, and so there has been some concerns that if you're taking a whole bunch of extra salt capsules, that will make you excessively thirsty. As I said before, there've been a couple of case studies suggesting that that might then cause overhydration. One was in an ultra runner, I think one was in a hiker in the Grand Canyon or in Death Valley somewhere from memory. Now the, the, they're case studies for a start. They they were done retrospectively, so they've gone back and found these people who got into trouble, and then asked them, "Well, how much did you drink? How much sodium did you take?" Now, obviously, these people have had a near death experience, and were probably found unconscious or wandering around, not very with it at the time, before they ended up in hospital. So to accurately go, "Oh yeah, I had this much sodium. I had this much fluid." I, I kind of take that with a grain of salt, to be honest, just because of the way that data has been collected. So, I mean, it was certainly a concern and it was definitely worth looking at. And, and I guess anyone, you know, you know, you don't drink seawater because it's very salty and it's going to make things worse rather than better. So, you know, there is a, a genuine concern there that, that needed to be looked at. So, yeah, if, if you're over replacing sodium during exercise, you would expect excessive thirst, which is not a nice feeling kind of psychologically as, as much as physically. And then if, if it's really excessive, particularly just lots of salt going into your stomach, there is a risk of nausea and vomiting as well, as I experienced in some of the early experiments at the start of my PhD, where I was trying sodium capsules on myself and seeing how many could be tolerated and, and what type of capsules we should use to to prevent these kind of issues happening in our study participants. So yes, I did make myself vomit a couple of times in those early days, unfortunately. <laughs> Damn, and I wasn't around to see that one. So secondly, and, and more importantly, why the heck did you ask your participants, including your friend right here, to exercise <laughs> and run for five hours? Couldn't it be done over a shorter duration of time? Well, we could have done it over a shorter duration, but we may not have been able to answer the questions that we were setting out to answer. What we were trying to do is to lose enough sodium over the exercise duration to really observe the dichotomy, the effect of replacing all of that sodium versus not replacing any of that sodium. And so there have been prior studies around sodium replacement during sort of three, four hours of exercise, probably at slightly lower intensity or in cycling or you know, with a bit more wind speed because of the, the cycling aspect rather than running. And, and they'd created deficits of up to about 5% of 
an estimate of someone's total body sodium stores. So 5% of all the sodium in someone's body at the start of exercise was, was lost during exercise. But we really want to push this further because we know that in ultra endurance events, people are going to lose a lot more than that. You know, it could be up as high as you know, 15, 20% in some cases if the body is not compensating along the way to account for this. And that's still one of those kind of unanswered questions. So we wanted to go as long as we reasonably could to try and create the biggest potential sodium deficit that we could, but also to, to do that in a way that could, one, observe what effect that was going to have and two, whether the body was actually going to spring into action and try and do something about that along the way. So we really wanted to push that total sodium deficit closer to 10%. And then we got up to, I think it was 8.9% or something like that in the end on average in the participants. So we didn't quite get there, but we did pretty good and certainly a lot more than, than any study that's been published to date in the literature. The second reason for the, the five hours sounds a bit silly, but the funding grant we were going for was the Ultrasport Science Foundation. So to get a funding grant for research from the Ultra Sports Science Foundation, you have to be doing research in ultra endurance sports, which is generally defined as more than four hours of exercise. So, you know, we kind of had to do that to justify the funding as well. But I guess the main reason is, yeah, we wanted to create a big enough sodium deficit to see what really was going to happen as it, as it would out on the, the trail or the road or whatever it is in an ultra endurance type event. I think go with your first reason there, Al, because I got Ultra Sports Science Foundation funding and I did not make anyone run for five hours. It was there three. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I snuck through the cracks there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we won't um, tell them, so you yeah. have to pay it back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how was the recruitment for this type of study then? Slow. <laughs> Everyone would have heard me if you listened to fueling endurance slash long munch as it was known back then over the last couple of years you would have heard about this study a lot and calling for participants a lot because it was slow recruitment mm. so as i said you know we applied for this funding grant at the end of 2018 and got it started the project in 2019 i think we got four or five participants in that first year we were aiming for 16 eight males and eight females and we got to the end, we got five done the first year, and we thought, oh, that's, that's, we're going all right here. We'll come back in 2020, and we should be able to knock the rest <laughs> off. Famous last words. <laughs> COVID <laughs> shut that down for two years. I think we got one in, in 2021 between all the lockdowns. And then we had to come back in 2022 and finish it off, and then obviously do all the, the analysis, pulling bloods out of the freezer and analysing them, doing all the write-up and getting it published into to 2023 when it finally got published towards the end of 2023. So, yeah, it, it was slow. In the end, we just had to say, okay, that's enough. We've, we've got all we can. We ended up with nine participants, so seven males and two females. And I guess one of the reasons that we pulled the pin in the end was that it was clear that we weren't going to get more female participants. So, obviously, we had you, Steph, which was amazing, uh, and then another Ooh. colleague of ours, I won't name names, in the uh, interests of anonymity in, in study participation. But, yeah, so we had we had yourselves, which did an incredible job, and obviously the, the seven guys did an incredible job as well. You know, this was not an easy study to be a participant in. But at the end of that, we're sort of like we've scratched around for four years and we can't get another inquiry from a female participant, you know, despite doing everything we could you know we obviously had females volunteering for a whole bunch of other studies at the uni but when you've got about six different studies to choose from 
who wants to choose the 30 degrees, five hours of running with a rectal thermometer and collecting all your urine for three days beforehand and the day afterwards. Yep. Yep. Exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Doesn't come to the front of the line. No. (laughs) And how many studies have had people in the lab running for five hours? As far as I'm aware, this is the second There is one study, which I didn't know existed until recently, and I was actually just reading a media article and saw a link to this study, and I'm like, holy dooly, there is a study out there, which was done by a very well-known ultra-endurance sports science group in France, who did a study with 12 male runners running for 24 hours on a treadmill, Mm -hmm. which is quite amazing. Mm. Some, Some really cool data, obviously, out of that. There is one study of seven hours, but that was walking on a treadmill, not running. And they had breaks for 10 minutes at the every end of each hour. So they were a bit soft compared to you guys, mm, Steph. Mm, yeah. Yep. yeah. There are at least two cycling studies that I know of that, that go for five hours. Uh, one was back in 2005, was one of Vasca Yerkendrup studies, um, which looks at sort of different types of carbohydrate intake and what that does to the use of carbohydrate over five hours of cycling. And the other one was actually done after I started this one, and it's actually another ultra sports science foundation funded study which was looking at hydration so the actual fluid volume rather than the sodium side of things and that was done by eric goulet's group in canada yeah and so can you explain i guess the general runnings of the study so you know you've mentioned i guess how many participants you ended up recruiting but yeah what was involved for the participants including you know the diet and the bloody annoying collection of the urine yes it was bloody annoying um (laughs) yeah i I often refer to this as you know it wasn't blood sweat and tears well there might have been tears but no one did it in front of me anyway (laughs) but blood sweat and urine there was plenty of of all of those things so as as you said there were nine participants seven males two females and they came in at the start and we did a, a vo2 max test and then a one hour familiarization which is where they run at 60% 60% or the, the speed that, that gives gives them 60% of their VO2 max, which is about 8 to 10 kilometres an hour. Or, or for the runners, you're saying, well, what about minute Ks? It's sort of 6 to 7.5 minute K. So kind of ultra trail type type pace. It's not, not super quick. 30 degrees Celsius. And we did that one hour familiarisation, one to familiarise the participants, but also to, to do the initial sweat collection. So we could actually quantify people's sodium losses and then work out how much we were going to then replace when they came in for the, the main five-hour trials. Now, this is something that's actually unique. This is, as far as I'm aware, the first study in the world that has ever measured people's sweat losses and then brought them back and actually given them that amount of sodium or personalised the sodium replacement. So, you know, it, it's commonly accepted practice to do this but it's never actually been done in a research study until now so people usually just skip that step and just give everyone the same amount of sodium which is probably way too much for some people and and not enough for others so that was also when you ask you know what do we want to do in this study that was another thing we wanted to do was look at the personalization aspect of it because it hadn't been done before Uh, so we then got them all the participants had to eat food that we provided for three days before the exercise and that was to make sure that the amount of sodium in their diet was the same before both trials standardizing 
the food and, and standardizing the amount of salt in your diet is very difficult to do without providing food that's identical. So we had to provide all the food. And as you said before, Steph, we had to get all you guys to collect all your urine, every last drop for the three days beforehand as well to confirm that actually the, the amount of sodium coming in and out uh, was the same in, in both trials. And so we wanted to do that because we didn't want that to then change or influence the amount of sodium that people actually lost during those five-hour trials between the two studies. And we'll, we'll come back to it later, but I think it was one of the things that if if I had to do it again, we would have done the same before that one-hour familiarization as well, and we'll, we'll talk about why later on. So then they got on the, well, they put in the rectal thermometer, fun things that they are, took some blood, put on some sweat patches, so there's our blood and our sweat, and we've already got our urine, and, and then you ran for five hours at that same speed as the familiarization. So that's sort of six to seven and a half minute case for five hours. At the halfway mark, we got you out and did another blood test. And then you got back in and, and kept going just to get that two blood measurements over exercise. So before halfway and then and then another one afterwards. Obviously, the sweat patches came off as, as people went and we collected that sweat in the first hour and the last hour of exercise. And then I guess the main intervention of the study, what we were actually trying to compare in the two trials was whether you know, replacing 100% of your sodium losses or, or 0% would make any difference to, to all the measurements, which we'll talk about shortly. But So we gave everyone capsules, which either had salt or placebo, which was just maltodextrin powder in them. Uh, and it was swallowing basically about somewhere between two to eight capsules per hour, depending on how much we need to replace in each individual participant. There was a base amount of fluid that was given to basically get carbohydrate in. Uh, in most people, that was less than about 300 mils, maybe a little bit more for some of the bigger guys. But what we wanted to do, as I said before, was actually look at people's voluntary fluid intake, how much they were actually going to drink, given the choice to drink as much or as little as they wanted to see if the, the salt in the capsules would drive them to drink more. So there was that little bit of standardized fluid to get the carbs in, but the rest of it was we just gave people a bottle and said, drink as much or as little as you want. And then obviously measured that along the way. So once the exercise had finished, rectal thermometer comes out, sweat patches are all done. People went home still with the standardized meals for the rest of the day. And they continued to collect all their urine for the rest of that day. And we also gave everyone water in a few one and a half liter bottles that we pre-weighed beforehand to basically measure how much water people were voluntarily drinking after exercise as well as well, we obviously captured during exercise. And then they came back the next morning, we did another blood sample, we weighed them, did a couple of other tests as well to look at different aspects of hydration. And then, of course, that five-hour trial was done twice, once with the sodium capsules, once with the placebo capsules, and they were obviously in a randomised order for each participant. Yeah, a lot, a lot in there. You, you got great memories, Steph? Yeah. yeah, it's all coming back to me, actually, when you, you said that. Great memories. And, and not in a good way. No. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, especially not collecting that urine. Hey, you didn't have to analyse it all. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah, thankful for that. As you mentioned, participants replaced either 100% of their sodium losses or obviously 0% with the placebo. So why 100% replacement versus other amounts? Yeah, it was something that we had to consider up front when we designed the study, you know, how much we were going to go for. And because there were no guidelines, we couldn't go, well, we'll give people what the guidelines recommend because there are no guidelines. 
so the reason that we went for 100% or well, two reasons one is that many people assume that you need to replace 100% or they advocate replacing 100% and that had kind of been the traditional approach from back when sweat testing was kind of first introduced certainly here in Australia in the mid 2000s or that was the implication of what should be done the other thing, and this is probably a, a quirk of research design, is that you always want to go, when you're doing something that's kind of new, start at the extremes. Because if there's an effect there, you want to see that effect and make it as obvious as possible. And then you can kind of narrow it down later on. So for example, if we'd given 0% and 50% of sodium losses and we saw nothing, then you'd be going, okay, well, replacing 50% is no better than nothing. But if we'd replaced 100%, would we be better off? And so you're always left with that what if question. And so you want to come out of a, a research study, particularly, as I said, when you're doing an intervention that hasn't really been done before, without any of those potential what if questions. And so you start with you know, 0% and 100%, the two extreme ends of the scale. And then if you do see an effect, you go, okay, so we need, we know 100% is better than zero. Now we can start to narrow that down and go, Is what is the minimum amount we need to get whatever benefit that we might be getting? Whereas if you see no effect, there's no effect. There's no point bothering with all the in-between values anyway. Yeah, yeah. And what were the main variables that you were looking for or testing? I mentioned before, obviously, we're interested in thirst and fluid intake. So what we call ad libitum fluid intake. So how much people were sort of voluntarily drinking without us really pushing or prodding them to, to drink a specific amount or, or prescribing that fluid intake. And that was a unique part of that study. So there have been two other studies, a three hour and a four hour sodium replacement study. Again, neither of them provided personalized sodium replacement, but in both of those studies, they had also provided 100% of fluid losses for every participant. And so there was no way of knowing apart from you know perception of thirst, no way of knowing how that is going to affect voluntary fluid intake because they kind of just overrode that with complete fluid replacement. So we particularly looked at that. We looked at obviously sweat and urine losses, both in terms of the volume, so the fluid, and then the sodium component to those. We looked at, I guess, all the different markers of hydration that we could measure. So we looked at total body water. We looked at intracellular versus extracellular fluid using bioimpedance analysis. It's not perfect, but without using you know, stable isotopes and, and adding even more to the participants, we weren't going to get that in, in any more detail or any more specific. Plasma volume, so we measured the change in plasma volume, which you can do simply from a blood test. So you can measure how much the, the volume of the blood expands or contracts from one point in time to another point in time. We looked at the osmolality of the blood. As I said before, that kind of is the, the main thing that's going to signal thirst and also your kidneys to either conserve or not conserve fluid. Uh, and then blood sodium concentration, which obviously plays into the, the hyponatremia aspect and, and is the main influence on osmolality anyway. So we measured all of those. We measured from that we could calculate sodium balance, so the, the inputs and outputs of sodium from the body, so obviously the input being the sodium that was consumed, and then the outputs being the sweat and urine losses and the balance between those two. We could do the same with fluid balance, so fluid ins and outs. And then we had a look at a couple of biomarkers that were relevant to kind of how the body handles sodium. So aldosterone is a hormone that influences how the kidneys either conserve or don't conserve sodium and probably has a role to play with the sweat glands in that regard as well. And we also had a look at a marker I mentioned before, those osmotically inactive sodium stores in the skin and the muscle. 
that hadn't really been looked at in an exercise context before. Uh, usually, it's looked at with very expensive MRIs that we just don't have access to. So what we tried to do is look at a blood marker that might be indicative of that. And so from a few studies in the literature and, and what we know about that whole process in the body, we looked at a, a marker called vascular endothelial growth factor C or VEGFC, which theoretically might be elevated when releasing sodium out of those stores back into the blood again. So we, we measured that as well. We didn't really know what we were going to see because it hadn't been done in an exercise context before. It's only really been done in diseases where you get really weird things going on with fluid balance, heart failure and, and kidney failure with dialysis and that kind of thing. So we didn't really know what to expect with that, but I thought it was a, a good good fishing trip to go on, so to speak. <laughs> Expensive fishing trip. Yeah, <laughs> probably, no doubt. So what did you find and were you surprised with your findings? Well, the first thing we found, as I said, that I guess one of the big focuses was around thirst and, and fluid intake. And we found no significant effect when people took the sodium capsules or the placebo capsules in terms of how much they voluntarily drank. In both trials, they replaced about 70 to 75% of their sweat fluid losses. So this was a little bit of a surprise. I was expecting the sodium group would probably get thirstier or, or maybe they wouldn't necessarily rate their thirst higher because they drank more to satisfy that thirst. It is it is different to some studies that have done sodium replacement in, in maybe in other contexts and not over that sort of period of time where in some cases giving sodium in capsules has resulted in greater fluid intake when the sodium capsules were given compared to the placebo, but not all studies find that, and we certainly didn't. The difference in fluid intake was only about 70 mils an hour, and it wasn't statistically significant. As a result of that and the fact that there were no differences in fluid losses in sweat during exercise, which we would have expected, there was therefore no effect on fluid balance. And so in one trial, the average was 1.9% body mass loss and then the other was 2.4% and the, the difference between those two was not statistically significant because there was so much variation between participants. The other thing I guess we were particularly looking at was the, the blood sodium concentration and there was a significant effect on that. People might assume that replacing sodium during exercise is important to prevent hyponatremia which is low blood sodium so to stop it from falling. But we actually found in this setting where we gave people the option to drink as much or as little as they wanted, actually the blood sodium went up in everyone in, in both trials, um, but it went up more when they had the sodium capsules. So basically people's ad libitum fluid intake wasn't going to be enough to actually dilute their blood sodium and put them at risk of hyponatremia. So the sodium isn't going to save someone from something that they're not at risk of in the first place. And so Blood sodium concentration went up by four millimoles per litre, if that means anything to people with the sodium capsules and only one millimole per litre with the placebo. And that, that was statistically significant. We expected to see an effect of sodium on plasma volume or blood volume, but there was a lot of noise in this data. There was a huge amount of variation between people. And so there was too much to be statistically significant. If you look at the graph in the paper, it looks like there's a big effect of sodium in maintaining blood volume, whereas it looks like it's dropping in the, the placebo group, but the difference wasn't statistically significant. 
Now, this is probably because, and this comes back to what I was saying before about we should have um, standardized the diet before that initial familiarization test as well. We did have a couple of participants who had a much higher sweat sodium concentration in that original familiarization test compared to the two trials where we actually gave them the standardized diet. And so what that meant was that we made up the sodium capsules based on this higher sweat sodium loss and actually ended up over replacing their sodium during the two main trials. And this created a lot of noise in this kind of data. But what we did do is we then looked at the relationship between how much the sodium was over or under replaced in the trial with the sodium capsules and then the change in the plasma volume. And we actually found a pretty tight correlation between those. So basically the more people over replace sodium, the more their blood volume tended to, to maintain or actually increase during exercise. Whereas when they were closer to just replacing enough, it tended to dip a little bit. So that was definitely a relationship there. And, and you see that with all the other studies where there's a standardized fluid intake, but variable sodium intake, that sodium, obviously the amount of fluid in the body stays the same because they're getting the same intake and the same losses, but it pulls it in and out between the inside of the cells and the outside of the cells, and that affects the, the blood volume. What we did also find, which I guess is coming to some of the more practical outcomes, is really no effect on body temperature. So those rectal temperature values were no different in the two trials. There was no difference in the perception of effort. There was no difference in people's rating of thermal comfort. There was no difference in the perception of thirst. And there was no difference in basalt craving, which we also measured. So none of those things were, were different whether you replace the sodium or not. We didn't find any evidence for that vascular endothelial growth factor C in terms of release of osmotically inactive sodium stores. There was huge variation between people, but between trials in the same person, they were very, very similar. So it looked like whatever that causes the variation between people was much bigger than the effect of replacing a massive sodium loss or not. At least over five hours, that might be different if it was, say, 20 hours in a 100 mile or something like that. There was, in the, the post-exercise period, a massive reduction, as we would have expected from that 1957 paper I mentioned earlier, a big reduction in, in sodium losses in the urine post-exercise in the placebo. So when they didn't replace the sodium during exercise, they had that big sodium deficit, sort of 8% of their total sodium or 9% of their total sodium. The kidneys tried to compensate for that after exercise by massively reducing the amount of sodium that was being lost in the urine by about two-thirds. But this still wasn't enough with the diet that we'd given them to actually bring them back into sodium balance by the next morning. Had it been you know, 48 hours, I suspect yes. Had we given them a higher salt diet post-exercise, then again, maybe yes. But it clearly showed that effect. So that was, was good to see and, and confirm that effect. We also found that people, the amount that they voluntarily drank in the hours after exercise up until the next morning was greater after exercise in the trial where they'd taken the salt capsules rather than the placebo capsules. Uh, and we think this is probably because they finished exercise with a higher blood sodium concentration and that is tending to make them more thirsty and then they're drinking more fluid post-exercise as a result of that. I guess overall, I'd put all that together and say really there was kind of minimal effects of sodium replacement that would confer a health or a performance benefit at least over five hours of exercise in those kind of conditions, or that would really justify going out and measuring sweat sodium concentration or, or losses, and then you know going, I need to replace this specific amount of sodium during exercise. Now, five hours, the participants lost about four to five litres 
of fluid over those five hours. And it's really about that total loss that I think is the important part here. And then again, coming back to the paper I talked about back in episode 47A, where we modeled this for a hundred miler, theoretically at least, there you're losing more like, you know, 15 to 20 liters of sweat over the whole event and then having to replace a large proportion of that. That's when the, the sodium replacement probably becomes more important. So was there much individual variation in sodium losses during the trials? Yeah, definitely. And, and you see this in pretty much all the, the studies that do measure sodium losses. In terms of the actual sweat sodium concentration in the participants, this varied from 34 to about 76 millimoles per litre, and that's an estimated whole body sweat sodium concentration. For those of you who, you know, millimoles doesn't mean much, it's about 795 up to about 1735 milligrams per liter of sweat to put that into a sort of an hourly context it's about 550 up to 1600 milligrams per hour of sodium loss in terms of the sweat rate that was far less variable the the sweat rate only varied from about 840 to about 1030 mils per hour so the biggest driver of the the variation in sodium loss was in the sweat sodium concentration rather than the the amount of fluid loss. And again, that sort of fits with what we know about sweat rates being associated with the amount of work being done. And given that everyone was in a, a relatively small range in terms of the speed they were running and they were all doing it in the same conditions, you wouldn't expect massive variation in sweat rates. So that, that pretty much fits with what you would expect. Yeah. And so what are the key take-home messages of this study? And do these findings help answer the question of whether personalised sodium supplementation during endurance exercise is beneficial to an athlete's performance? Performance, not necessarily. We didn't do a performance test. I wanted to. But uh, (laughs) as I was putting the application together, I said to Ricardo, oh, wouldn't it be great at the end of the five hours if we did like a time trial or something? And he's like, you're being cruel enough to them as it is. (laughs) Don't push your luck. So we didn't push our luck. I kind of wish we did, but you know, that's that's for another day. That the five hour cycling study I mentioned before from Eric Goulet's group, that's exactly what they did. So they varied the amount of fluid people drank, made them ride at a constant pace for five hours and then tacked a time trial in the end of about fifteen minutes or something. So I wish we had done that, but we didn't. But I guess the take home messages, first thing is probably up to five hours of continuous exercise in the heat or a total sweat loss of about four to five liters. So that could be you know, 10 hours in a cooler environment or three or four hours in an extremely hot environment or, or at higher intensities of exercise. But certainly up to about four or five litres of sweat loss, there didn't seem to be a need for any specific sodium replacement during exercise at all, uh, and therefore no need for testing under those kind of conditions where you wouldn't expect a, a loss of more than about four or five litres. Um, so replacing sodium in those instances, at least with capsules, and we'll come back to, to why I say that in a minute, but is that's probably not likely to help for aspects of hydration, which is kind of the, the point of this podcast, uh, and certainly for things like body temperature regulation. And, and I would say, given the results that we saw, I would speculate no difference in performance, but obviously we didn't actually measure it. So that's kind of speculated based on uh, perceived exertion, body temperature, heart rate, all those kind of things. So I guess what what do we make of that or what what's the advice from that? I guess for these kind of events up to about that five hours or up to about four or five litres of total sweat loss, 
uh, I guess is rather than you know going to all the effort of sweat testing and going, I need this much sodium to be replaced, is instead just choosing sodium based on personal taste preferences. Now, obviously, in, in this case, we were giving people sodium in capsules because we wanted to blind it. We wanted to make sure that they didn't know which trial they were doing in, in each trial. But in the real world, of course, you're going to add that to your your food and fluids potentially or have salt tablets that you can actually taste. And, and so that will have an influence on your enjoyment of food and fluids, how much you want to drink, and the taste may actually encourage you to drink more rather than it being a pure physiological thirst, so to speak. So that may be beneficial for people who do tend to underdrink a bit during exercise and need a bit of a nudge for that. Then having uh, you know slightly saltier fluids, for example, might actually encourage them if they enjoy the taste of that and they like drinking more of that. Even replacing 100% or more of sodium losses, as we had in a few participants, didn't really seem to make people excessively thirsty and dangerously overdrink, as had been kind of forewarned in some of those case studies. But again, I need to emphasize here that this was using capsules and not salty fluids or food or tablets or something like that. So maybe if you had extra salty fluid, the taste of it in your mouth is going to drive the thirst rather than having more salt in your blood driving the thirst. So that's something that we don't know for sure from this study. I guess the other thing I'd say here is though we know that there's probably no need for any other reason to replace that much sodium during exercise. So while we don't know 100% for sure if that's going to drive dangerously high fluid intakes, we do know that really no one should be doing that in the first place which probably means it's not going to be an issue or shouldn't be an issue anyway. Now, I guess the final thing, just thinking about stage racing and some of the things that were going on post-exercise, I think the first thing from that is that we don't necessarily need to go, okay, I'm in a sodium deficit of this much, therefore I need to go out and replace that in the way that we you know, replace a fluid deficit after exercise from a rehydration perspective because the kidneys, to some extent, are going to compensate for that. Not completely, maybe, but to some extent. So it's probably still worth increasing sodium intake to some extent, particularly if there is a short turnaround between exercise bouts, it's, you know, morning and afternoon training, and they're both big sessions, or a stage race where you finish one sort of late afternoon and then you've got to go again early the next morning. But certainly I don't think you need to stress about you know replacing every milligram of sodium that has been lost and not replaced during the exercise itself. And um, gaps in research? Yeah, well, I guess the first one I mentioned just before, you know, capsules versus being able to taste the salt. What we've looked at is, I guess, putting that sodium into the blood and seeing what that does to us physiologically, but it doesn't necessarily tell us whether the salty taste in the mouth is going to affect some of these things. So that is certainly still something that will be worth looking at is maybe a study of salty fluids versus salt capsules versus maybe placebo capsules, something like that. Obviously, longer duration exercise. This was only five hours. Now, clearly, Steph, I can't see you volunteering for a 24-hour treadmill study. So, you know, a lot of that stuff is not going to be done in the lab. Maybe the best we're going to do there is the modeling data that we talked about in, in episode 47A, where we can theoretically model sodium needs over a longer period of time, at least in terms of what it's going to do to the blood sodium concentration. So that that is something that we could consider instead and try and find out where, you know, at what point does sodium replacement start to become beneficial from a hydration point of view. And certainly in the ultra-endurance events, you know, probably somewhere over at least six hours, 
probably longer if it's less than 35 degrees Celsius. And obviously you then get into, you know, mornings and evenings and overnight. So that's going to be generally lower temperatures as well. And for really long events over 10 hours, I think there probably is still a rationale for that, but certainly not in this kind of five, five, six hour mark. Uh, and then the final one, which we haven't really touched on here, is is the fact that during this study, we replaced the sodium in the capsules as sodium chloride, which is your standard table salt. And that's kind of how you move sodium around the body. Sodium and chloride tend to move together through the body. They're lost in sweat together. They're you know, filtered through the kidneys together, that kind of thing. So where sodium goes, chloride usually comes with it for the ride. But increasingly, sports drinks are not being formulated with sodium chloride because the chloride doesn't taste that great. They're using sodium citrate instead as the source of sodium. And we don't really know what happens when you uncouple the sodium and the chloride in the replacement side of things. So, you know, that's going to then force the kidneys or the sweat glands to respond to one or the other. You can't respond to both together, the the sodium and the chloride. So I think that would be interesting as well to look at is sort of a prolonged study again unfortunately because you're going to have to create that big deficit and then replacing sodium chloride versus sodium citrate and see what happens Mm. yeah so i guess now you're wanting to do a study that has participants exercising for like more than five or six hours so you should probably just go to france and get the athletes that did the 24-hour run well, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, that was over 10 years ago now, so they've, they've probably moved on. We'll have to find some more suckers for punishment. But <laughs> no, I, I think I'm, I'm uh, happy with five hours. I don't really have any desire to stay in the lab any longer than that. They were long days in the lab as mm. it was. So mm. yeah, no, I don't think so. And I think for, for longer durations of exercise, you then have to go to field-based research to actually go out to races where people are already committing to running those kind of distances. Obviously, you lose a fair bit of control in terms of a lot of the variables, the weather, the pace, all that kind of stuff. But I think there is still some merit in doing that and and some interesting results you can get if you design it well and if you can get participants on board to to capture data well. So, yeah, I think Mm -hmm. that's probably the step if you want to go longer. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess, yeah, final take-home messages for endurance athletes with sodium replacement during endurance exercise. Yeah, well, I guess the first thing is events up to five hours or about five, maybe even up to six litres of total sweat loss over the event. There's probably no need to go out and do sweat sodium testing and planning a specific amount of sodium to replace for those kind of distances. And we kind of knew this from that modelling data that I talked about back in 47A, but this data in the lab with actual participants and and really doing it has kind of confirmed that, which is nice. And in those situations, you can kind of choose the amount of sodium you replace based on more taste preferences and what's going to drive the consumption of food and fluids that is beneficial to you. So if you tend to overdrink, maybe not having lots of sodium might be helpful. If you tend to underdrink, well, actually having something that's more salty, if that's going to help you drink more, encourage you to drink more, then that might be a good thing. But probably not necessarily being much more scientific than that. I guess the other thing here is that sodium alone is unlikely to drive that increased fluid intake and improve hydration. As I said, the salty taste may help. And I guess above above that, there's a a theoretical benefit in terms of when you go beyond sort of five, six litres of sweat loss or five hours of exercise, but it is a theoretical benefit and it's not one that's really been 
comprehensively studied and for all we know that there is those release of osmotically inactive sodium stores or something else going on that's going to affect you know how much sweat is lo- you know how much sodium is lost in in sweat or urine and those kind of things some of those mechanisms may start to kick in at 10 or 15 hours of exercise or you know once you've lost enough sodium but we just don't know because it hasn't been studied so yeah it, it's an interesting one and i think some of those answers can be potentially found from field-based research so there's opportunities out there to do it Awesome. So I don't need to do a summary because you've just done that for me. But our our next episode. Yeah. So our next episode will be episode 72. And we're very happy to welcome back a past guest from our previous episode 50, Jason Coop. So for those of you who don't know, Jason is a legendary ultra running coach over in the U.S., based in Colorado and our topic is what do I do in a race when my nutrition plan falls apart so a very practical one we've gone from something very theoretical to something very practical it certainly happened I think to everyone at some stage in their running cycling or triathlon career if it hasn't happened to you yet just wait it will (laughs) and hopefully I haven't jinxed anyone but yeah it's going to happen to all of us at some stage And Jason's got a great little framework that I found in uh, his book, Training Essentials for Ultra Running. And he's going to take us through that framework and discuss, you know, how it plays out and how you can implement that practically. And we'll we'll, uh, sort of workshop a couple of little scenarios that are relevant to nutrition specifically, because the framework's not just for nutrition. It can be anything from, you know, blisters to getting lost in the bush to an injury or something like that. But obviously we're, we're talking about nutrition. So we'll run through a couple of examples with him as well and really get into that framework, which I think would be super cool. Awesome. And so just a, a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at Fueling Endurance on Instagram or Facebook or at Fuel Endurance on Twitter, a.k.a. X. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate it. If you do listen on one of these platforms and have um, a little bit of time to spare, we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review. And remember also that there's now 71 questions that we've answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. And most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them going back to November 2020. And if you would like to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app you're listening to this on. And you can now get your hands on the ebook through fuelingendurance.com. And if your friends are asking a particular nutrition question for their training or racing, and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know so they don't have to keep bothering you. Otherwise, as always, we will love and leave you and see you in a couple of weeks' time. Will do. See you then. 